0: welcome back. It's so great to hear from you again. Thanks. I'm glad to be here again. So I I know we had a great discussion last time you were here and we talked a bit about your life as an OT and kind of the way that you think about spaces and modifying spaces, improving functionality. You even shared some some great stories and insights from your highly creative approach to (laughs) helping people get their activities of daily living accomplished. But I know that that your passion for this and your services come from a deeper part, which is your story about your your journey with your aging parent. And I'm wondering if you could take us back to a time when you started to notice that your aging parent might need some extra help. Like how did what happened? Was it sudden? Was it over time? Like, where did this come from?
1: So. It definitely happened over time, so let's see my, my mom and dad, they I'm from West Texas and they kind of lived in a town about 30 minutes away from Lubbock. And so they had, you know, a small town doctor and all that kind of stuff. And I was always kind of, I would get on their nerves actually a <laughs> question after question, or, you know, they said I nagged them. But I started noticing actually with both of my parents, just my dad had cardiac history and wasn't compliant and yada, yada, yada. And my mom, she had a a pretty big stroke in 2005 or four, if I remember correctly. And, you know, she she did pretty well with rehab after that stroke, but still was never 100%. So since about 2005, she heavily relied on my dad well my dad ultimately passed away unexpectedly in 2018 of a heart attack and then that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks like oh no (laughs) what are we gonna do because I had started seeing because because my mom had had that big stroke but then she was having subsequent little TIAs the little mini strokes And I could see maybe that her her mental status wasn't as sharp. And I started noticing the signs of dementia even before my my dad passed. But it seemed like to me when my dad passed away, her mental status just it took a sharp decline overnight is what I saw. At that time, because I said they lived in a small town outside of Lubbock my one sister lived in Lubbock and I knew at that time that we were going to have to get, because she worked full time. And, you know, on the weekends, she would usually drive down and kind of help my parents do whatever. But I was just trying to figure out a way, how can we get my mom to leave the house that she, you know, loved that she shared with my dad, like how to leave that situation to get closer to my sister because and, and my niece, my sister's daughter. So those two were her primary caregivers at that time. And so as a family, we did get her moved to Lubbock. What I wanted, though, and this, again, is coming from my OT kind of thinking. One, I would try to explain to my sister and my niece, I think mom has dementia, Well, they didn't believe me or didn't want to believe me. I don't know. And I kept trying to say, I think it's in mom's best interest to maybe move into assisted living or someplace to where she can meet other women her age and be stimulated. And, you know, because at that time, my mom couldn't drive or anything. But, you know, she can go out in the community. She can meet friends. My mom actually one of her best friends from high school was ready to move into the same facility with her. But I get my mom thought that we were trying to move her into a nursing home. You know, she didn't, she didn't understand the difference between, you know, a senior community or independent or assisted living. She thought all those places were nursing homes. And she said, yeah, I don't ever want y'all to do that to me. And so she, her only interest was buying a house. And I thought, okay, well I had to, I felt I couldn't really bark orders, if you will, because I wasn't the one living in Lubbock being the one to that primarily took care of her. So I kind of had your sister,
0: right? That, yeah, you mean, yeah. Okay.
1: So <clears throat> we, my mom did sell her home that she shared with my dad. After all those years, she sold, sold the house and, and bought a house in Lubbock and my niece moved in with my mom and And that was fine because we needed a a caregiver. But I think my niece started getting, and I knew this was going to happen. And this is what I was trying to explain to them. You guys, this is not going to be sustainable. I said, I think maybe we can try. I would tell my niece, I think you can live with mom for about six months. Let's give it six months. And then we're going to have to figure out a longer term solution. Well, it just, again, this, this happened in 2019 when just another year would pass and another year would pass and my niece was still living there and, and it was just getting harder and harder to help care for someone with dementia. And, and, you know, again, my mom was her, her type of dementia was manifesting in a way she was becoming very childlike, very demanding. She would say things that i know she didn't mean and then my niece would take it personally and i would try to explain or she would say you know ugly things to my to my sister and my niece and i would just have to tell them listen y'all can't take this personally this is her dementia and at that time both of them still would not admit or that my mom had dementia they just did not think that's what that was they just thought she was being mean and i would say it's it's not mean it's you know any way i could say it And it wasn't getting through. Well, so then I quickly realized, okay, I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to step up. I'm going to have to give my niece and my sister some respite. So that's when I thought, well, let me, let me just work on trying to get my mom moved to San Antonio. And so I converted my garage to an apartment. And my mom would come and stay with me from time to time for, you know, a few weeks at a time but then, you know, she would want to go back home. So I was, you know, having to leave work at the drop of a hat and just drive my mom back to Lubbock, or I would have to drop work again and have to drive to Lubbock to go pick up my mom. You know, this was going on for years. And so I thought, okay, this isn't sustainable either. (laughs) Let me start because now it's time to get professional provider care in the home. So I reached out to some provider agencies in Lubbock and there was a really good agency that i developed a relationship with. And we hired a provider, which isn't cheap. I mean, you know, it was 20, on average, $21 an hour for these people to come in. And at this point too, my mom would say, well, I'm not going to pay for that. And so In the background, I am having to get an attorney because I'm thinking, well, she's not really able to... Her dementia was pretty severe, and I knew that, and she wasn't able to give a lot of consent about her money. So, you know, things like she was writing $500 checks to people that she shouldn't have been writing $500 checks to yeah. <laughs> within, within my si- that side of the family and stuff. And, and, you know, I just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have to kind of take control of her finances here because she can't be writing $500 checks to just people for, I mean, half strangers she's given this money to I'm like, know we're going to need these funds to pay for provider care. So I got an attorney, we got the will, we double checked. So I became the durable power of attorney, the medical power of attorney, the executor, all this stuff. And then I'm still, she's still coming for visits. I feel it was kind of a severe depression on top of, because she was still grieving over my dad and processing that. And then her dementia was getting worse. And then, then my niece who was living with her became pregnant and then was definitely not able to participate in my mom's care anymore. And this is during, and then COVID just started. So, so then I was having to go up there more or hire extra hours for providers. And then, then we had gotten to the point where we all as a family made a decision because then at this point, my niece had the baby and uh, (laughs) yeah, the baby, (laughs) this is how long this is going on. And then mom did, she eventually, she did get COVID in January of 2021. And she had already gotten to the point where she was no longer able to walk. Like probably the last time my mom was able to walk was end of 2019, early 2020, because the dementia was also impacting her motor planning skills. Like she just could not. She got to the point where she just, yeah, couldn't advance her. She could stand, but couldn't advance her feet for transfers or anything. So she was becoming a deadlift for all of her transfers and everything. And it was just too much on my niece and my sister. So we made the decision. We're going to move her into my house. I'm going to hire full-time provider care now that I had full access over her money and was watching it closer. But then she got COVID. She was discharged home after her... um, she got released from the covid unit there and she and i was seeing this with my own patients at methodist as well people with advanced age that were getting covid they were getting this more so a, a delirium so my mom was released home and bef- i had to have that discussion with the covid physician at that time and we made the decision to bring her home on hospice so she she got discharged home in January of 21 on hospice, but she had that terrible delirium screaming, hallucinating, all that stuff. And it was really hard on my niece. So I thought, okay, well i had already planned. Everything was ready for my mom to come live here. And I was planning on moving her in here. And then she got COVID and then she wasn't going to survive that. Her doctor wouldn't let her travel here. He just didn't think she would make that ambulance ride. So, in that moment, I had to make the hardest decision of my life, which was, I'm going to have to put her, sorry if I get emotional, (laughs) in a care home. um, She passed away, not even a month later. But she had a moment of lucidity, and she realized what I had done. And Anyway... All that fell on my shoulders, all those decisions, because I had a lot of people on up there on that side of the family that thought COVID was a hoax and wouldn't get vaccinated and all that. And so then they weren't allowed to go into the private care home because that gentleman had his own set, B- very strict rules yeah. at that time during COVID. Sure. And so it was my face that she saw that you know, it was me that made that decision to put her in a nursing home after, you know, she was real hellbent on not being put in one, but it was the decision I felt that was best for everybody at the time. Cause I just kind of felt like my hands were tied behind my back and it was a really wonderful place, but yeah, she, she was pulled off all of her, you know, her blood, her, she was on eloquence at the time and all that stuff she had to come off of all that when she went on hospice and yeah, she, I put her there February 10th and she passed on February 22nd. Oh, 12 days. 12 days. So it was a very hard time in my life.
0: (laughs) Well, I, um, I'm privileged and honored that you'd share it with us because these are the reasons where we're talking about this, right? So we can talk all we want about, you know, Medicare and, um, you know 36 36- inch doorways but the reason yeah. i started the podcast was the heavy interesting and really formative parts of this are these difficult decisions and how how do you take these relationships that started out as a child parent relationship and then evolved into you know medical power of attorney and mm-hmm. disabled adult, right that's a, an incredible arc of a relationship. I mean, our other relationships in life, like you meet in a friend when you're an adult, I mean, it's kind of a, there's maybe some art to it, but it doesn't go from, you know, you're changing my diapers all the way to I'm deciding these kind of end of life decisions. So I do appreciate you sharing that. I have a million questions for you, if that's okay. Sure, sure. (laughs) To kind of dissect this. So going back to sort of your idea that you needed to take some more formal Action on the legal side. What did that look like for you? What's the first thing that you did?
1: So, what the first thing I did was I, w- I went through my mom's when she was asleep because she was very paranoid. That was a- also part of her dementia. She didn't want anybody looking through her files. She thought we were stealing stuff or whatever. So, I waited until she was in another room or asleep and I was combing through her desk drawer and I did find her. Um, her paperwork, her will, the last will she had had done. So I I found it and I found where she had changed, which I didn't know she had done any of this. Right after my dad died, he had a trust and for whatever reason, and I will never find the answer to it. She wanted to break that trust up. And she went to her little small town attorney outside of Lubbock that and I knew that man too from church <laughs> and she had gone to him and had that trust broken up and had a will done to where she put me as everything, durable medical, durable medical of attorney, medical power of attorney and, and the executor. But then I found another version to where she had changed that all around and put my oldest sister in charge of all of that, but I mean, that sister, she lives in Atlanta, but then I guess there, there was a mistake when she had to get that done and it wasn't notarized properly. And so, cause I had to get my own attorney cause I felt there's a whole big bunch of drama. There was, I would call up when I found her will and I saw that that one attorney had changed it all. I would call him to try to verify stuff and he just didn't want to speak to me and he was being very odd. And I'm like, why won't he give me any information? And he would be very gruff and very short with me and very angry with me. I'm like, what did I ever do? I don't understand why he's mad. So I'm like, "Okay, I guess I need because he wouldn't give me the original copy of the will. All I had was a copy. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. Let me just so I had to go and hire my own attorney here in San Antonio. And I found out that. My my sister that lived there in the Lubbock area had kind of retained that same attorney to try to get my mom's will changed to where she was wanting my mom to leave them her house and stuff that I was against purchasing in the first place. So all that was going on in the background that I had no idea about. So when I found that other copy. That was not notarized properly. I found that out from the attorney I had here, and my oldest sister in Atlanta said, "No, I just you you just still need to take. I trust you. I want you to be in charge of everything." So that copy that she had tried to change to my older oldest sister to be in, in charge of everything it was null and void anyway because my my attorney pointed out it wasn't notarized correctly. So. Then in turn, I finally, I would tell her, I don't know why my mom's attorney is not talking to me. So she finally had to get it out of him that there was some stuff going on with my family up there about what they wanted my mom to give them. And in the meantime, I'm like, you know what? I can't, this isn't, I need to, and I was advised to get my mom tested. So I cognitively tested so I had to call her physician and they had to come out and do a cognitive test on her. And she, and they gave her the, the MOCA. Anyway, she scored in the Alzheimer's range. And so then my attorney, I gave her all of that paperwork. And then she in turn was communicating with that attorney out there. And then came known that all that stuff was going on in the background, which then I guess he realized he couldn't be doing any of that stuff by changing that will around. So he just left the original alone and finally sent that will and and all the living will components of it and the medical attorney, medical power of attorney paperwork, all of the originals to my attorney. And then I was able to finally receive it and then start doing everything I needed to do in terms of hiring more provider care up there and taking full control over her checkbook and things like that to pay her bills and stuff.
0: How long did that take from starting to look into this to actually getting it delivered to your attorney? How how many months was that?
1: Oh, gosh, five or six.
0: So if she hadn't had that original one done. So one, if nothing had been done, this could have been but does, I mean, a mess, right? Even more of a mess, right? than it sounds like it eventually got to, and then having it done and then attempting a redo. Again, these are complicated legal issues that involve coordination between a medical team, a legal team, like, you know, so the, le- the least number of variables as possible, but that just goes to, you know, trying to make sure these things are in place, communicating well ahead of time. And I'm not sure that that you know, what's happened in this case, but as somebody is in the earlier stages of cognitive impairment, they become a vulnerable adult. Yes. And the, the worst of humans, the worst part of good humans, maybe, I don't know what you want to call it, become aware of this. This is, I, I, this nobody's immune to this. I feel like in, in families. And I've seen this happen where they circle around and they get people to make less than great decisions. And the problem is that it eventually compromises that person's safety, their care, their quality of life. And, and part of, part of this is not just protecting them, but protecting the ability to care for them. And you, and we've heard this story a couple of times on the podcast where somebody makes a catastrophic financial investment or, you know, somebody gets them involved in a pyramid scheme or something crazy like that. And everything they've worked for and they can't cognitively protect it can be gone like overnight. And so planning about this ahead of time, no matter how much money it is, even if it's a, you know, $5,000 or something, if that's all that they have, you know, having that in um, protected in, in ways that that can help make sure it serves them long-term. But anyway, I'm really sorry. That sounds like an awfully stressful situation on top of your dad passing and on top of your mom, having a dynamic medical condition. Perhaps this is maybe a sensitive topic, but I'm always interested in the siblings, how they work together to help care for somebody. And the, the dynamics tend to be that the one that's closest, there's a couple of criteria, but the geographically closest one has one experience, right? The geographically removed one has a different experience. And then if either of those people are a healthcare professional, that's even like another variable So I'm I'm wondering how you guys worked together or didn't work together or lessons learned on the dynamics that set up between you. And it sounds like two sisters, right? I
1: have two sisters and one, the geographically close one in Lubbock, which when things first started happening, all three of us as a team, the one from Atlanta would do what she could in terms of, for example, my sister in Atlanta ordered a security system, a fall alert security system for my mom and, and paid for that kind of thing. And then she would come in once a quarter and do the stuff that really none of, me and my my other sister didn't want to do. My oldest sister in Atlanta would come in and clean that kitchen out clean that storage unit out and, you know, do the stuff no, we didn't want to do. But she liked to do that stuff. And then my geographically close sister, the one in Lubbock, and I, the healthcare worker, I mean, Initially, we had a, a good, all three of us worked well as a team. I could just get in the car and I, what I was doing right when my dad died. in Because I knew, because my niece is the one that moved in with my mom and I knew she was going to need respite. So I drove to Lubbock once, sometimes twice a month for the sole purpose of giving my niece respite. So that was kind of a whole, you know, three sister, one niece dynamic duo Trio, whatever you want to call it. we worked it out. But then my mom did. She started becoming more and more vulnerable as her dementia was progressing. And I started seeing things because I was there once a month. My other sister in Atlanta couldn't see it as much. I would report to her, but she maybe there was some, I don't know, eventually she saw it, started seeing it. But in the beginning, it was kind of hard to really believe just the the things that started happening. Um, my mom was in a very vulnerable place. I mean, at this point, she already had stopped walking. She couldn't, you know, get her words out and make her, her wishes that, you know, she couldn't communicate that effectively. It was, it, like I said earlier, it was construed as her being mean. But just, you know, things started happening, like I said, with the checkbook and right, you know, she was giving people money that shouldn't have received the money. And then people moved into that house that, um, you know, shouldn't have, you know, my mom didn't give permission for my niece's boyfriend to move into the house. And and um, that boyfriend had a child, a three-year-old. And um, one of the hardest things that happened also, I told him, I said, listen, that's fine. They would consult with me on it, but I would say, please, just don't let mom see you move her. My mom had this; she had a prize doll collection. She loved that doll collection, and she curated it over the years. And I said they were gonna, and it was in the guest bedroom. And I said, okay, that's fine. You can set the guest bedroom up for the little boy, but don't let mom, just don't let her see you move the doll collection out. Well, you know, one day on a Saturday they moved all that stuff out in front of my mom's face. She saw him doing it. And then my mom called me at work in a sheer panic that they're moving all of her stuff out of her house. So all these things started happening. And that's when the teamwork broke down and we just never really had a good working relationship anymore after that. And that's when I had made the decision. I just need to get my mom moved here into my house. But That just never happened because they would put a wall up around it. And, you know, for multiple reasons, I think they were afraid I was going to kick them out of that house and stuff. And I was never going to do that. I just wanted my mom out of there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, going back to when your mom initially had the stroke, how, how old was she at that time? That seemed like she'd be pretty young.
1: So, right. She was, let's see in her 60s. Let's see. She was born in 1942. I think she was in her late 50s, early 60s. And my mom had severe rheumatoid arthritis and she was taking Uh Celebrex. And and her physicians were kind of attributing that first stroke to that Celebrex
0: medication. Oh, that's right. That's Yeah. That's that's about the time that they started thinking mm-hmm. that some of those, that particular class of drugs. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that helps me understand that a little bit more. I'm wondering because you've mentioned several times about the, uh, I don't call them, I don't want to call them intrusions. That doesn't sound right, but sort of these like panic calls, crisis calls, mm-hmm. you know, trying to go up there once or twice a month. Did you, what motivated you to participate and do this for your mom?
1: Well, one, I felt guilty for, not living there because my mom kept kind of asking me to move back to Lubbock. And I I just couldn't wrap my head around doing that at the time because professionally, you know, I was here and my career was going here. So a lot of it, I felt guilty because I wasn't there. And so I was trying to do what I could to be there for her in the way that I could. And then and two, I was, again, I felt I didn't want to be that one sibling that didn't do anything because I knew my one sibling lived there and I didn't want to be the one that didn't help as much. So I just, and I don't have children. So I was able to, you know, to just get in the car and go. So those were all the factors that went into making that decision.
0: As I've talked some before on the podcast, I, I think it kind of breaks down into some different categories. There's a cultural tradition or pressure. Like this is what people in this specific religion or culture do. And then there's even more specific than that, like familial pressure. This is what a good daughter would do. This is the expectation. And then the other part is just sort of like, I think I've interviewed people that want to do it. Like they're excited. Like this is an honor. Like this, I would do anything for this person. Uh-huh. And then I've interviewed people all the way to like, it took everything in my body to, 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 you know, motivate myself to, to participate at that level. And so do you have any comments on those couple of areas?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, especially when my mom would be here with me, when those few times she did come to stay with me and she would be here just a few weeks at a time. And yeah, I mean, I found myself, my thing with that is, I was honored to do it, but at the same time, I felt mad at her because, I mean, I don't tell a whole lot of people that, but that's my, I felt maybe not mad at her, but just mad in general because one of my go-to emotions is anger, which (laughs) I'm trying to understand that about myself, but I also felt that she was putting me and my two sisters and my niece in an unfair situation because she was very demanding. And she was like, you, you girls will never put me in a nursing home, you know, and she made us feel guilty if we had ever considered doing that, which we never would have anyway. But she was a really, it was hard to take care of her. And, you know, between her physical disability and her, her the level of dementia she had it was very challenging and so I was honored to do it but at the same time I felt angry about it. Well
0: how much of that was her like if she had been healthy versus you think the personality changes from the dementia do you feel like that was her either way that she was kind of demanding or challenging?
1: Oh she was challenging to... her whole like, she wasn't that wasn't yeah, new no right it, okay. it just it, it got worse. But no, she was a very demanding, challenging person. I mean, I shouldn't. She put a lot of, she expected a lot, especially from my dad, you know, and we we would always tease and say we called her a spo- spoiled, rotten brat because <laughs> she got her <laughs> way. She got her way all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So do you remember when the first time she mentioned this was that you're not going to put me in a nursing home? Was that after her first stroke or when was that discussion? After her,
1: after her first stroke. So I love this.
0: Uh, sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, I was going to say, cause she had, so see going backwards, her mom, her mom had strokes, but never, my, my, my grandmother, my mom's mom had little bitty strokes, but never really had a, a big stroke like my mom did. And then, but she died at 94, I think my grandmother was 94 and my mom was her caregiver and her sister lived in Oklahoma, but my mom was out in West Texas and was the one that took care of her mom. And she was able-bodied though, pretty much all the way until she got, she, she developed severe dementia and just stopped eating and all that stuff. And my mom never put her in a nursing home. And that's what she would tell us. I didn't do it to my mom. So y'all aren't going to do it to me. You know, that's how that's. I wonder
0: if you'll walk with me down this question, because this has come up multiple times, even with my own dad. So very early in the podcast, I interviewed my dad and he said something similar to that, which is like, that can't happen. And to me, I, I agree with it being unfair. That's not necessarily something within my control. And it's not like you can write a blank check and say, I'll do everything physically and financially possible to make sure you don't enter an appropriate care setting, you know, because it's extremely physically taxing to provide total care to somebody. And then financially, especially if you don't have some sort of independent wealth or, you know, the, the Medicare only pays for so much home health, there isn't an in home caregiver necessarily. And so, so it's almost like, I don't know that this is my problem to figure out, but I trust myself to make the best decisions with the information and resources I have at that time. So it's as unfair as it is to go to anybody and ask them to do something when you don't know what the variables are, you don't know what the resources are. And it's a highly charged and emotional thing. And I saw my husband's family go through this and it was like no 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 until there was a point where it was and then she ended up passing away in a caregiver's home
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it was like how did this happen and it just i mean you're just sequentially making the best decisions you can at right. that time yeah and and there are care settings that are safer mm-hmm. and better i mean mm-hmm. i myself like i don't know that i've never met anybody that was like i love to end up you know, living in a nursing home someday. Right. And I do think you mentioned something that's important, which is the education piece of the difference between, okay, I have a an accessible apartment in a senior living community versus, you know, right. what they're thinking of. I would also submit that there are nursing homes are are relatively, quote, are new in our country. So they came about sort of in the 1950s and 60s. And they've come a long way. There's still a lot of challenges with staffing and, and, and those types of things. But like, whatever your snapshot picture is of what this looks like, you know, going and knowing in your community, which I know she was in a small community, might not be a lot of choice, but, you know, getting updated on sort of what that looks like these days, what the costs are, what the setting mm-hmm. is. But I'm with you on, and and I'm thinking of this for my own children is, is trying very hard not to make those types of statements because that's not something that they can control. Right. And, and then I'd have to make my own. That's the other thing not to get into stickier topics than this, but it's, if that's what you want, then you have to make a whole lot of financial decisions early in life to ensure that you can pay for a 24 hour caregiver in your own home. Right. And so that would be like, a, a very few people in this country, a very small Correct. percentage of people could save enough money Correct. for a five to seven year dementia diagnosis with 24 hour dementia level care. You're talking, you know, into the seven figures for something like that. Yes, And so I did that <laughs> it's it's not, it's <laughs> yeah. not like, I mean, I'm not like, well, I guess you should have like, you know, saved a little bit more and not bought cable. I mean, you're not talking that level. You're saying, Like if that's really what you want to insure for yourself, then you would have to have that amount. And so if it's my responsibility for me to take care of myself, and then I know I don't have a million dollars in the bank just for long-term care, then it would be, look, if it's A or B with the resources available, I'd prefer to to be in my own home. But again, that's, that's, that's pretty much the default assumption for most people. Unless they're going to have an alternative, which these are expensive as well. These senior living communities where they yes. can go into a stepped, you know, progressive type. Right. Okay, well, I can start at independent living and then go to assisted living and so forth. But those are also for many, many people cost prohibitive. I mean, mm-hmm. we were talking in another podcast about taking showers in a, in a trough. I mean, we need to not just be specifically talking about these pie in the sky things that aren't available to most people. Mm-hmm. You know, and including myself with my own parents, right? There isn't, as far as I know, $250,000 laying around ready, ready to go towards a continuing care community. So anyway, I've tried to come up with some ways to talk about this sensitively, because I think a lot of people in that position is when the request comes about, which is I don't ever want to be in a nursing home. It's what's the next discussion. I'm really mm-hmm. glad you shared that with me. I acknowledge that. I need you to know I'll do the best that I can. Mm -hmm. Right. And then being, you know, realistic about here's what it costs to have care in the home. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I think a lot of people just don't know what that costs. And then it's like, what else would you like me to do? Well, I can't go there. And -hmm. then I think you have discussion about goals of care. Well, it's like, okay, then I would recommend a palliative approach much Mm -hmm. sooner in your life then like, let's go get the maximum number of surgeries and medications and etc. Then then maybe you're thinking, okay, well, I'd I'd like to be able to stay at home. Well, then again, rethinking the goals of care, well, just to stay in the home. Well, you might fall, you know, you might have other issues. But if you're in a palliative setting, it doesn't, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. But like, that's much more tolerated, right? Because you're just doing quality of life, then like, we've got to keep you maximally safe. And Right, and That kind of thing. So I, I empathize with you and I'm so glad you shared it because I feel like this comes up and people feel so incredibly, it's such an incredibly charged conversation because you're talking yes. to somebody that you love, or maybe if you don't love, you feel a tremendous amount of responsibility for based on a lot of other cultural and religious background type things. And, mm-hmm. and then they're basically asking for this thing that you don't know if you can make happen. And so what ends up happening is as things progress and somebody does go into a care home, exactly what you described. And I've heard this over and over again, right? Which is now at the end of life, it's like, look, how dare you? And Mm -hmm. I can't, I have not been there myself and I cannot empathize with you enough how that must feel. And I'm just glad that you shared it because I think there have been so many people in that situation, many on this podcast that have talked about that, hey, you know, I did the best that I could and it still wasn't enough. And they tend to also be in parental relationships or contexts where nothing was ever enough anyway. (laughs) So it was like, that's the last thing you did that you failed at. That's the last thing you did that wasn't enough. And like, what a shitty way to have that relationship under a close. And it's almost like, If nothing's been enough, then I guess this isn't enough either. And and I say that I'm not I'm not joking about it, but like I've heard this 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 storyline over and over again where, you know, I really tried to make her life as best as perfect as possible till the end. Not even much so much because I I had adoration or like for that person was because like I just felt insanely obligated to do so and knew what would happen if I didn't. And Mm -hmm. it was that that chasing that unattainable approval. Appreciation, yep. which really draws people into these really, really difficult, strained situations, chasing after that approval and that final, like, you know, you did good or something like that. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not right. going anywhere with this. I just wanted to to really point that out because I, I you are definitely not alone in that, and and I'm I'm just insanely sorry that you had to to go through an interaction like that, but. From from whatever it's worth from a third party. I mean, this is a totality, right? I mean, you do as the best you can, and that's what yeah. you have to know. That's the hardest thing. It's like, who gets to decide this? Well, I guess I do because mm-hmm. I can't rely on other people to decide this for yeah. me.
1: Oh no, it became it fell on my shoulders, which I, I was fine with. But you know what? What I it, it was almost like I would wake up and say, okay, what is today going to bring? And I literally just my life during that time was literally how am I going to get through today? And then how am I gonna, you know, I would not, anyway, it was just one day at a time, especially then because I was just always, I was always on alert. And at that time too, my fight or flight response was, you know, I would flinch at a, at a horn honk or, you know, a knock on the door of my fight or flight was existed in fight or flight for three years. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, anyway.
0: Well, I, if you could think back kind of some lessons learned or or other things that if you think back and think, you know, I would have stepped left instead of right at this juncture. What, what would those be that you could share with people in similar situations?
1: Let's see. Meaning what would I, if I had something to do over again, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh. I would have, I would have moved my mom I would have just done it anyway. I would have listened more to my gut and just moved her here right the first time I wanted to instead of letting that situation linger for two years, that long distance thing between here and Lubbock. I think I should have just moved her here the moment my gut told me to do it. Because I don't think on many different reasons. One, I think it would have salvaged my relationship with my sister and my niece out in West Texas. I don't think we would be in the situation we're in had I done that. I was trying to make everybody happy. They didn't want her to leave. And my mom, you know, she said she didn't want to move here, but she really didn't know what that meant. And I should have just done it.
0: Well, we say that, right? But if this is before, I mean, even people that are declared incapacitated, there's still a lot of deference to their stated. Correct. You know, and so I I don't want to Monday morning quarterback it, but I think people forget, like, in retrospect, there are still limitations. So if somebody wants to wear a blue shirt, instead of a yellow shirt, you can't say, "Oh well, they are incapacitated. They don't know what they're talking about." Like, well, true. The attempt is that they get to wear a blue shirt if the, if it's it's one or the other, and so it is challenging. And there are mm-hmm. a lot of kind of gray areas around that of like, well, they don't really know what's in their best interest, and their best interest is to come here. And You're you right. add a little bit of family drama, man. These are just really hard things, and and they're occurring at a time where you should be thinking about retiring or your chapter in life, and it's like. You know, (laughs) that's why I was thinking so interesting. The timing of these things is like, well, you know, that was that it was kind of like your time to um, have whatever that was going to look like for your life. And then this comes up. And like you said, it spent, you know, three years going back and forth. And at the end of it, I'm assuming from from what you're saying, sort of some lingering, strained relationships. And that's not, I think, what anybody wants. And if I could say anything about my grandmother, she's very big on everybody getting along even if you don't get along, you don't tell her, you just, you right. Know. And the thing is, you know, one of the ways to do that is you just be very clear about what you want and what you need. And, right. you know, try not to create situations that would pit other people against other people. <laughs> and then just well, one of those I, vulnerable times, you know,
1: I guess the second thing to your question, I wish when my dad passed away before my mom's dementia progressed, I wish I would have had more financial discussions with her about planning for her long-term care. Like, cause right. you kind of touched on that, having those conversations about mom, this is what it's going to cost to keep you at home. And, you know, just a, a, a real on a uh, pencil and paper, write the numbers down, Many conversation. I wish maybe that we could have entered in that kind of conversation before. Cause that would have been helpful.
0: And I think Thanks. there's this default of like, oh, we could just get somebody for, you know, $10 an hour. And and I'm thinking, okay, one, I don't know that you want somebody working no. at $10 an hour. And this is yeah. really hard work. I don't even know that that's that's not a fair wage for that. But but a lot of people also forget the management of the personnel. I mean, whoever's, if you're hiring an agency, then you have a, a 50 or 100% premium mm. on the hourly rate for the agency to make sure somebody's there. If you're not going to pay the premium for an agency to run it, Whoever, whether it's a daughter, son, whatever, now becomes an HR department mm-hmm. because they had a caregiver coming in eight, that person's child is sick or they're sick themselves Correct. or their car broke down. And then who's going to get mom out of bed because the caregiver, I mean, it yes. even having a caregiver in the home is not some like turnkey no. thing, right? No. Mm-hmm. And then if you have 24-hour care, you're looking at three shifts and that's a high turnover area
1: anyway. Yes. I'd, yeah, we and had so, so many different providers. So oh yeah, we and, never knew who we
0: were getting. Yeah, and talk about safety. Now you're trying to make sure that they're safe, and the people interacting with them are treating them well, and yeah. that the nothing is you know being broken in the house or things like that. I mean, it even then, it's not like okay, snap my fingers, twenty four hour care. The only way you can do that is when you move into a care setting, where right. that then the administration of that care setting has to make sure somebody's there. So
1: correct correct right.
0: <laughs> that's part of it so so this is this has been great i am so glad that that we crossed paths and we're able to talk about this and i know it was difficult to share that but the idea is that you know you're not alone and there are other people listening that have themselves or know somebody going through this and the idea is that we talk candidly and we you know are able to share this with our, each other and just create a discussion around it, a conversation. Yeah.
1: So. it's important to yeah. just rely on each other and have access to what all resources are out there for all of us. <laughs> how,
0: how do you, I know it's been a couple of years, so we're going up on almost three years now, two and a half years. How have you kind of changed in that time? Have you had some, have you adapted, I guess, to the, the, the phase after that?
1: The phase after losing my mom? Yes, yeah. Well, I, you know, counseling has been important. Talking to a non-biased, just medical counselor has been helpful. Yeah. Uh, Also just trying to, you know, I think you kind of hit that when you were talking about that piece at the end, you're just trying to, did I do it right? You know, am I the good daughter or whatever? I'm just trying to do things that's, Aunt, like her, her probate judge, I had to do like probate court over Zoom. And when he was in Lubbock and I was here with my attorney and he said something to me too about, you know, you've been given the ultimate responsibility. This shows what you're doing now, really how much you love not only your mom, but your mom and dad, because you know, you're handling their estate. And he goes and he goes, treat it like it's yours, but only better. Meaning, so I've just Kind of uh, done the best I could with the physical things they've left on this earth and um, tried to do right by them moving forward, be it just donating to things they both loved. I also keep up with their friends, also the remaining family members, like on my dad's side and my mom's side, I make sure I still keep up those relationships because I know I'm just trying to do things that I know my mom and dad would want me to do.
0: That's awesome. I appreciate you touching on that because I always forget to ask about that Mm -hmm. phase after because I think a lot of people are in that in that phase as well. So then that kind of goes to the point of like nobody will ever like send a certificate that says good enough daughter. Right. (laughs) And like and so a lot of people are chasing that. And you know, I, I wish if I maybe that's what I should develop. I put it on my website as a printable PDF. But like this idea that, you know, we can recognize that in ourselves and that we can be the arbiter of you know what's good enough, and women aren't used to doing that. And it's just like this. Like I said, it's a blank check. I'll do everything and anything possible, in in you know, to to the detriment of everything else because I'm so dedicated to this. And this is yeah. zero sum game, right? There's mm-hmm. only so much time, only so much right. attention. So right. Wow. Okay. So this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for for coming on and sharing with us and and talking about some vulnerable topics. And I yeah. really enjoy getting to know you. And and thank you again for, for being a repeat podcast guest.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.
0: Hey everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests really it's just me and a possible guest or two sometimes three sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents if you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional if you have any questions or concerns please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.